This episode, I'll be reading the May 11, 2023 opinion of the Supreme Court in Santos Zakaria v. Garland. Enjoy. Justice Jackson delivered the opinion of the court in which Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett joined. Justice Alito filed an opinion concurring in the judgment, in which Justice Thomas joined. Under 8 U.S.C. section 1252 D. 1, a non-citizen who seeks to challenge an order of removal in court must first exhaust certain administrative remedies. This case presents two questions regarding that statutory provision. For the reasons explained below, we hold that Section 1252d1 is not jurisdictional. We hold further that a non-citizen need not request discretionary forms of administrative review, like reconsideration of an unfavorable Board of Immigration Appeals determination in order to satisfy Section 1252d1's exhaustion requirement. Part 1. Petitioner Leon Santos Zacaria, who goes by the name Estrella, fled her native Guatemala in her early teens. She has testified that she left that country and fears returning because she suffered physical harm and faced death threats as a transgender woman who is attracted to men. Santos Zakaria eventually sought refuge in the United States. Her first stay in the country was brief, and she was removed by immigration authorities in 2008. In 2018, she returned and was apprehended again by immigration authorities. At that point, Santos Zakaria sought protection from removal including withholding of removal based on the likelihood she would be persecuted in Guatemala. An immigration judge within the Department of Justice entered an order reinstating Santos Zacaria's prior removal order and denying the protection she sought. On appeal within the department, the Board of Immigration Appeals upheld the immigration judge's denial of withholding of removal. The board agreed with Santos Zakaria in part, determining that she had suffered past persecution in Guatemala and was therefore entitled to presumption of future persecution. But the board found that this presumption was rebutted, which was an issue that the immigration judge had not reached. Santos Zakaria then filed a petition for review in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit under 8 U.S.C. Section 1252. Her petition contended, among other things, that when the board concluded that the presumption of future persecution was rebutted, it had impermissibly engaged in fact-finding that only the immigration judge could perform. In a two-to-one decision, the Court of Appeals dismissed Santos Sicaria's impermissible fact-finding challenge for lack of jurisdiction on the ground that she had failed to exhaust administrative remedies 
under Section 1252-D1. The government had not raised exhaustion, but the Court of Appeals did so sua sponte because it characterized Section 1252-D1 as establishing a jurisdictional requirement. The court further held that because Santos Sicaria had not raised the impermissible fact-finding challenge in a motion for reconsideration before the board prior to filing her petition with the court, she had not satisfied Section 1252-D-1's exhaustion requirement. There is disagreement among the courts of appeals concerning the two issues presented in this case. One, whether Section 1252-D-1's exhaustion requirement is jurisdictional, and two, whether Section 1252-D-1 requires seeking discretionary administrative review like reconsideration by the Board of Immigration Appeals. We granted certiorari to resolve these conflicts. Part 2 Section 1252-D-1 provides A court may review a final order of removal only if the alien has exhausted all administrative remedies available to the alien as of right. The first question before us is whether this provision ranks as jurisdictional. We hold that it does not. Section A. A jurisdictional prescription sets the bounds of the court's adjudicatory authority. By contrast, non-jurisdictional rules govern how courts and litigants operate within those bounds. Claim processing rules, for example, seek to promote the orderly progress of litigation by requiring that the parties take certain procedural steps at certain specified times. Harsh consequences attend the jurisdictional brand. For example, because courts are not able to exceed limits on their adjudicative authority, they cannot grant equitable exceptions to jurisdictional rules. Jurisdictional objections also can be raised at any time in the litigation. Moreover, and most relevant here, courts must enforce jurisdictional rules sua sponte, even in the face of a litigant's forfeiture or waiver. We treat a rule as jurisdictional only if Congress clearly states that it is, and where multiple plausible interpretations exist, only one of which is jurisdictional, it is difficult to make the case that the jurisdictional reading is clear. We adopted this clear statement principle in ARBA to leave the ball in Congress's court, ensuring that courts impose harsh jurisdictional consequences only when Congress unmistakably has so instructed. Section B Two aspects of Section 1252-D1, taken together, persuade us that this statutory provision lacks the clear statement necessary to qualify as jurisdictional. 
First, Section 1252D1 imposes an exhaustion requirement, which is a quintessential claim processing rule. When faced with a type of statutory requirement that ordinarily is not jurisdictional, we naturally expect the ordinary case, not an exceptional one. So it is here. We routinely treat as non-jurisdictional threshold requirements that claimants must complete or exhaust before filing a lawsuit. Indeed, we have yet to hold that any statutory exhaustion requirement is jurisdictional when applying the clear statement rule that we adopted in ARBA. Exhaustion is typically non-jurisdictional for good reason. Jurisdictional treatment of an exhaustion requirement could undo the benefits of exhaustion. That is, exhaustion promotes efficiency, including by encouraging parties to resolve their disputes without litigation. But jurisdictional treatment can result in the opposite. If exhaustion is jurisdictional, litigants must slog through preliminary non-judicial proceedings even when, for example, no party demands it, or a court finds it would be pointless, wasteful, or too slow. Similarly, an exhaustion objection raised late in litigation, as jurisdictional objections can be, might derail many months of work on the part of the attorneys and the court. Thus, jurisdictional treatment could disserve the very interest in efficiency that exhaustion ordinarily advances. It would therefore be aberrant for the exhaustion requirement in Section 1252d1 to be characterized as jurisdictional. Of course, Congress is free to attach jurisdictional consequences to a requirement that usually exists as a claims processing rule. But to be confident Congress took that unexpected tack, we would need unmistakable evidence on par with express language addressing the court's jurisdiction. Nothing close appears here. Instead, a second feature of the statute compounds our doubt that Section 1252d1 qualifies as a jurisdictional rule. That provisions language differs substantially from more clearly jurisdictional language in related statutory provisions. Elsewhere in the laws governing immigration cases, Congress specified that no court shall have jurisdiction to review certain matters. Over and over again, Congress used that language in provisions that were enacted at the same time, and even in the same section as Section 1252d1. But Congress eschewed such plainly jurisdictional language in Section 1252d1. The contrast between the text of Section 1252d1 and the unambiguous jurisdictional terms in related provisions shows that Congress would have spoken in clearer terms if it intended for Section 1252d1 to have similar jurisdictional force. And here, there is good reason to infer that the linguistic contrast between Section 1252d1 and neighboring provisions is meaningful, not haphazard. Unlike other provisions, Section 1252d1 concerns exhaustion, and its language tracks exhaustion's unusual jurisdictional status. 
Taken together, these two features of Section 1252D1, its content as an exhaustion requirement, and its contrast with related plainly jurisdictional provisions, make interpreting Section 1252D1 as a claims processing rule credible enough that we cannot deem it clearly jurisdictional. Thus, we conclude that Section 1252D1 is a non-jurisdictional rule merely prescribing the method by which the jurisdiction granted the courts by Congress is to be exercised. Section C. The government offers several reasons why Section 1252D1 should nonetheless be characterized as jurisdictional. Given our clear statement rule, none is persuasive. First, the government insists that Section 1252D1 is jurisdictional because it is addressed to the court and limits review. But that language does not necessarily refer to the court's jurisdiction. Claims processing rules can also be addressed to courts. After all, one purpose of such rules is to instruct the court on the limits of its discretion in handling claims. Provisions limiting review can be directions about the mode or manner of review that are likewise non-jurisdictional in nature. Examples abound, including elsewhere in the same title and section as Section 1252D1. Moreover, when taking other aspects of the statute into account, it becomes apparent that Section 1252D1 is not using court and review in a jurisdictional manner. Section 1252D1 is not even focused solely on the court. It also requires that the alien has exhausted certain remedies so it speaks to a party's procedural obligations as well, just like a non-jurisdictional claims processing rule. In addition, as previously mentioned, Congress had expressly jurisdictional language close at hand. Its use of more ambiguous phrasing to impose a quintessential non-jurisdictional requirement is hardly the requisite clear statement that Section 1252D1 is jurisdictional. Second, the government seeks to advance a theory that is based on a prior version of Section 1252D1's exhaustion requirement, a statute that existed before Section 1252D1 provided that an order of deportation shall not be reviewed by any court if the alien has not exhausted the administrative remedies available to him. According to the government, that predecessor provision was jurisdictional, and Congress merely carried forward that understanding in Section 1252D1. But at each step of that theory, we find doubt, not clarity. To begin, the government has not established that the predecessor provision was actually jurisdictional. Its text, standing alone, did not clearly govern the court's jurisdiction. So the government turns to precedent. No precedent of this court, however, established that the predecessor exhaustion provision was jurisdictional, in the sense that we now use the term. 
the government principally invokes Stone v. INS, 1995, and Nken v. Holder, 2009. Both cases described portions of the Immigration and Nationality Act that contained Section 1252D1's predecessor as jurisdictional. But jurisdiction, the court has observed, is a word of many, too many meanings, and courts have more than occasionally used it to describe rules beyond those governing a court's adjudicatory authority. Neither Stone nor Nken attends to the distinction between jurisdictional rules, as we understand them today, and non-jurisdictional but mandatory ones. Indeed, Stone predates our cases, starting principally with Arbaugh in 2006, that bring some discipline to the use of the term jurisdictional. Nken came later, but it never addressed the Arbaugh line of cases, and in both Stone and Nken, whether the provisions were jurisdictional was not central to the case. On top of all that, neither case addressed the exhaustion requirement specifically. Instead, both merely mentioned the section of the Immigration and Nationality Act that housed the exhaustion requirement. Stone and Nken, therefore, cannot be read to establish the predecessor exhaustion requirement as jurisdictional, further weakening the government's reliance on the claimed jurisdictional status of Section 1252D1's predecessor is the fact that when it enacted Section 1252D1, Congress did not even recodify that prior provision exactly. Instead, Congress altered the formulation that, according to the government, had been understood as a jurisdictional rule. And having gone to the trouble of rewriting the provision, Congress still chose not to use the more expressly jurisdictional formulation that it utilized elsewhere. All of this is inconsistent with the government's theory that Congress understood the predecessor provision to be jurisdictional and carried that forward in Section 1252D1. Finally, the government suggests that Section 1252D1 is jurisdictional simply because it falls within Section 1252. Section 1252 is the exclusive source of jurisdiction for immigration cases like this one, the government contends, so each of Section 1252's limits must be jurisdictional. This logical leap falls short. Any foreclosure of sources of jurisdiction outside Section 1252 does not tell us which provisions within Section 1252 are essential jurisdictional prerequisites, and even if some provisions in a statutory section qualify as jurisdictional, that does not suffice to establish that all others are. This argument, like the government's others, fails to demonstrate that it is clear that Congress made Section 1252D1's exhaustion requirement jurisdictional. The Court of Appeals erred in holding otherwise. Part 3 The government now suggests that even if Section 1252D1 is not jurisdictional, 
the Court of Appeals' sua sponte requirement that Santos Zacaria comply with Section 1252d1 can be justified on alternative grounds. We do not reach that issue. Instead, we hold that even if Section 1252d1 were applied here, Santos Zacaria has done enough to satisfy it. That is, Section 1252d1 does not require that Santos Zacaria seek reconsideration from the board, as the Court of Appeals believed. Section A. Under the plain language of Section 1252d1, a non-citizen must exhaust all administrative remedies available to the alien as of right. The parties here dispute whether, to fulfill this requirement, Santos Zacaria had to seek a certain form of review of her legal claim, reconsideration by the Board of Immigration Appeals. Whether exhaustion for Section 1252d1 purposes requires seeking board reconsideration turns on the meaning of remedies available as of right, which in turn relates to the specifics of the board's reconsideration process. Pursuant to that process, after the board renders a final decision, it can provide additional review via reconsideration and its close cousin, reopening. Reconsideration addresses errors of law or fact in the previous order, while reopening accounts for new facts. Meanwhile, it is well established that a remedy is not available as of right if it is discretionary. As of right is a familiar phrase in the law, meaning by virtue of a legal entitlement and in the context relevant here, review of a legal claim. The phrase means review that is guaranteed, not contingent on permission or discretion. An appeal as of right is one over which the court has no discretion to deny review. By contrast, discretionary review is review that is not a matter of right and instead requires permission. Under the federal rules, for instance, an appeal as of right stands in contrast to an appeal within the court's discretion. To take another example, this court's certiorari review is not a matter of right, but of judicial discretion. Thus, because Section 1252d1 requires exhausting only remedies available as of right, it does not require exhausting discretionary review. Board reconsideration and reopening are discretionary. By regulation today and at the time of Section 1252D1's enactment, the decision to grant or deny a motion to reopen or reconsider is within the discretion of the board. That means that a non-citizen can request reconsideration but only if the motion to reconsider is granted does the board proceed to make the decision upon such reconsideration as to whether to affirm, modify, or reverse the original decision. And again, whether to grant the motion to reconsider and thus proceed to such review is up to the board in its discretion.
Because board reconsideration, like reopening, is a discretionary form of review, it is not available to the non-citizen as of right. Section 1252d1, therefore, does not require a non-citizen to pursue it. Section B. The government acknowledges that because Section 1252d1 requires only exhaustion of remedies available as of right, a non-citizen need not exhaust discretionary remedies. It also acknowledges that board reconsideration is discretionary. Still, the government tries to squeeze reconsideration into the statutory requirement of remedies available as of right. We are unpersuaded. According to the government, Section 1252d1 requires seeking reconsideration because a non-citizen has the right to file a motion to reconsider, but that is a peculiar understanding of a remedy available as of right. The government identifies no other provision that uses as of right to describe the right to file a motion that appeals to the decision-maker's discretion. A discretionary appeal, for example, is not as of right just because a litigant has a right to file a petition for permission to appeal. That understanding of as of right is so unnatural that even the government does not fully embrace it, as its view of other forms of relief reveals. Cancellation of removal, voluntary departure, and adjustment of status are discretionary types of immigration relief available to non-citizens only as a matter of grace, not entitlement. And the government accordingly volunteers them as examples of remedies not available to a non-citizen as of right, yet eligible non-citizens can file requests for those forms of relief. Even the government does not say these are remedies available as of right just because non-citizens have a right to request them. The government's reading has a further flaw. Understanding the motion for reconsideration as a remedy available as of right does not just read as of right unnaturally. It reads it out of section 1252d1 altogether. Under the government's view, there is a remedy that is available as of right here because the non-citizen is entitled to request reconsideration by filing a motion. But if a non-citizen could not request reconsideration, there would be no remedy available for the non-citizen to exhaust. The statute's additional requirement that the remedy be available as of right would be entirely superfluous. Instead, we read the phrase as of right to do its usual work in the context of review of a legal claim, distinguishing between discretionary and non-discretionary review. Switching gears, the government suggests that Section 1252d1 excludes only remedies made discretionary by statute, while reconsideration and reopening are made discretionary by regulation. 
True, Congress elsewhere focused on discretion specified by statute. We considered such a provision in Kukana v. Holder, addressing administrative actions, the authority for which is specified under this subchapter to be in the discretion of the Attorney General. But Section 1252d1 draws no such line. It simply covers remedies that are available as of right. Whether that characteristic is established by statute or regulation makes no difference. It is especially implausible that Section 1252d1 treats reconsideration and reopening as available as of right just because the discretion whether to grant them is not specified by statute. As we noted previously, when Congress enacted Section 1252d1, regulation and historical practice had already firmly established board reconsideration and reopening as discretionary. We have no reason to think Section 1252d1 categorizes those well-understood discretionary forms of review as available as of right. The government also posits that reconsideration and reopening are available as of right because, in certain cases, denying the non-citizen's motion would be reversible as an abuse of discretion. All this shows is that the agency's discretion has limits. That is no surprise. Traditionally, decisions on matters of discretion are reviewable for abuse of discretion. They remain matters of discretion all the same. Finally, not only do the government's theories fail on their own terms, but they also share a common problem. They would render the statutory scheme incoherent. The government urges that reconsideration, or at least a motion to reconsider, is an administrative remedy available as of right. Yet, Section 1252d1 requires exhausting all such remedies, without exception. So if the government is correct, non-citizens would need to seek reconsideration from the board before obtaining judicial review in every case. But that obligation is incompatible with the rest of the statute's design. In particular, elsewhere, the statute provides for a process that does not require reconsideration before judicial review. Non-citizens are authorized to seek judicial review of an agency order and, additionally, to seek administrative review of the agency's decision via a motion to reopen or reconsider the order. The statute gives non-citizens the same 30-day window from the agency order to seek judicial review and administrative reconsideration. The statute is thus designed around pursuing judicial review and agency reconsideration in parallel, not waiting to seek judicial review until after reconsideration is complete. With respect to a prior version of this scheme, we observed that if a non-citizen seeks reconsideration, the statute plainly contemplates that two separate petitions for judicial review will exist in the normal course, one from the agency's initial order and a later one from its decision on the reconsideration motion. 
If reconsideration were required for exhaustion, however, only one petition, the later one, would pass muster. The first petition would be premature. So the government's interpretation of remedies available as of right would not just flood the board with reconsideration motions that non-citizens otherwise would not file, it would also flood the courts with pointless premature petitions. Petitions that the statutory scheme would provide for non-citizens to file, on the one hand, yet deemed unexhausted on the other. We decline to interpret the statute to be so at war with itself. Section C. Conceding that it would be inconsistent with the design of the statute to require non-citizens to always file a motion to reconsider for exhaustion purposes, the government instead would require such a motion only sometimes, when the non-citizen is raising an issue not previously presented to the agency. According to the government, a non-citizen must give the agency an opportunity to consider an issue before raising it in court. So in the government's view, a motion to reconsider is required when it is the only remaining mechanism for presenting a new issue, but not when the non-citizen has already presented every issue to the agency in other ways. That is not the scheme Congress adopted. Section 1252D1 does not require non-citizens to give the agency an opportunity to consider an objection using every mechanism available. It requires exhausting only administrative remedies available as of right, and we do not see how seeking reconsideration can qualify sometimes and not others. Instead, for the reasons already explained, it does not qualify at all. Nor would the government's approach cure the inconsistency identified above. The statutory scheme would still produce pointless, unexhausted petitions for review. Consider, for example, a non-citizen whose only issue for judicial review is one she had not raised previously because the board's decision introduced the issue. Under the government's view, Section 1252D1 bars judicial review until after she pursues reconsideration, yet elsewhere the statutory scheme contemplates that she immediately petition for judicial review of the board's initial pre-consideration decision. Any such petition is a worthless exercise, however, if it is unexhausted by definition, as the government maintains. The government's approach would also introduce practical difficulties. If motions to reconsider are required only sometimes, what cases qualify? In this very case, the members of the Court of Appeals panel disagreed about whether a motion to reconsider was required under the government's rule, largely because they differed over whether Santos Zakaria had asserted adequately to the board earlier that new fact-finding would be impermissible. And how are non-citizens already navigating a complex bureaucracy, often pro se and in foreign language, to tell the difference? The government's position presents a world of administrability headaches for courts, traps for unwary non-citizens, 
and mountains of reconsideration requests for the board, filed out of an abundance of caution by non-citizens unsure of the need to seek reconsideration. For the reasons discussed, we are confident that Congress did not adopt such a scheme. Section 1252D1's exhaustion requirement is not jurisdictional and does not oblige a non-citizen to seek discretionary review, like reconsideration before the Board of Immigration Appeals. We vacate the portion of the judgment of the Court of Appeals dismissing Santos Zacaria's petition for review and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.